Hey, everybody. You have stumbled upon Stars of Tomorrow, where every Friday, I, Mr. Thrive, interview future screenwriter Max Richter, who has not yet been discovered. This up-and-coming podcast interviews the up-and-coming. Uh, thank Max, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very course. excited to be here. Yeah, of course. It's um, my first guest appearance. Right. Fact, so. um, no, I'm I'm really stoked to have you. And one of the reasons I'm actually stoked to have you is that you kind of witnessed the beginning steps to making this very podcast I because I was formulating a few things behind the scenes, and then one thing was like I want to create a grand spanking intro. Mm-hmm. Hence, this you have stumbled yeah. upon. Stars of Tomorrow. Yeah. And that's then like, I wrote this and you stole it from me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I let you take credit, but that's okay. Max, yeah. we, don't, we don't talk about that. Okay, no. sorry. Let's just keep going. God, I'm going to have to cut this out. Right. Do you know how hard it is to edit? Should we just restart? I'll hit the button. I don't know what these <laughs> buttons do, but I'll just start hitting them. <laughs> just, just press buttons until yeah. something works. Uh, but but I did ask you, like, you know, what sounds better? Um, there was a possibility in the making of this podcast, you know, is it going to be you just say your name and then I complete the sentence or are you just going to complete the sentence? And I think you were on the side of... Uh, just say the name. Just say the name and then yeah. I would complete the sentence for you yeah. because it sounded a little bit voicemail-y. And maybe it might sound a little voicemail-y, but I don't mind that. I think it adds I think it adds a certain character to the show. Yeah. It adds its own individuality. I think after hearing the first guest interview, um, it it just sounded right to me. Thank you. Yeah. yeah I feel like no. yeah, you, you made the right call with it. Yeah. Thank you, man. No, I I appreciate it. Yeah. I just watched your short film. Oh, yeah. One of the many short films that you've made, but this one it's Popsy, and it's not just any Popsy. <laughs> no. It's not just any short film. It's a short <laughs> film based off of the legendary Stephen King uh, short story. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. What was that like to make it? Well, if I were to describe it in a word, I would probably say it was a nightmare. Really? Um, yeah. And that's oh. a nice little pun because Stephen King is like a horror author. You oh, you know? don't say? Yeah. he okay. Believe it or not, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I know it's a cliche to say like anything that could have gone wrong did, but I feel like this was that moment for me. Like every single element of that project did not turn out the way it was supposed to. I did not get that impression at all. When I watched your video on, on Vimeo, which everyone should check out, go look up Popsy on Vimeo right now. You'll find Max Richter who has posted this video. Uh, it's it's a pretty seamless film. It's a short film. It's about 10 to 11 minutes long. It's good. I, I gotta say, I love the cinematography. Thank you. The acting was pretty decent. Uh, I, didn't, I went into it not knowing a single thing about Stephen King's Popsy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what what plot twists were coming up or anything. And within 10 minutes, I think Max Richter told a pretty darn good story. So I think in my opinion, that's mission accomplished. But what were some of the challenges that happened in this in this video here? Well, where should I begin? <laughs> um, where was it filmed? Let's start there. Okay, it was filmed in the suburbs of Chicago. Okay. Um, that was actually probably the biggest source of difficulty for us. Why? Um, Besides the cicadas, that was the one thing I did notice with sound. Yeah. Because I'm just middle of guy. summer. We just nothing you could do about every it. every cicada in yeah, the whole entire yeah. world was like let's 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 be an extra. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the original short story, uh, the kid. So I guess for those who haven't seen it, um, basically the story concerns a drifter type of guy who is in some debt to like a mobster type dude, and he. Um, is offered to clear his debt by kidnapping this kid and then giving it to the dude, presumably to sell him into slavery or something. But he, he finds this kid and picks him up and 
something goes wrong. Um, I won't spoil it, you know, because I want everyone to watch it, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, the scene where the main character actually picks up the kid uh, it doesn't happen at, like, a parking lot the way we filmed it. Um, it happens at a mall. Did you want and to shoot it at a mall? Yeah, we, we contacted uh, six or seven malls just kind of in the Chicagoland area. And, uh, I mean, there's tons in the suburbs. And we didn't think it would be an issue. But we, we kept running into a problem where all of them... They wanted to see the script because they want to know, like, okay, you can film here, but, like, what are you going to be filming? Especially since, like, we were college kids and, like, you know, they probably reasonably would assume we're not terribly experienced. Right. uh, I always find that, you know, uh, businesses and uh, the government always always are a lot more compliant to work with students because they're students. Yeah. So there was a little bit of an advantage there. Yeah, you would, you might think. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but, but not in this The case. issue is that this this scene we wanted to film at a mall is a child abduction scene, and, like, no mall in the world wants to be associated with that <laughs> reasonably, I guess. Did, and, you, there was, um, did you ever mention, like... We won't show the name of the mall. We'll just yeah, yeah. We're, we're really up front. Like, we're, we're not going to show any, like, storefronts. We're just going to be on the outside of the mall, like, kind of on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. It just needs to look like a mall parking lot, you know, like a mall exterior. Sure. But you know and, what? When I, when I watched the short film, the one thing that I... When I was seeing this child abduction scene, you're right, because they kind of do, like, this, this empty, vacant parking lot where the child abduction happens. Yeah. That didn't really bother me. And the reason why... Is because as you're watching the film, you might question it at first, but as you continue watching, this twist that comes up is enough in the left lane, not only to make you forget about it, but it's so left lane that you kind of think to yourself, it's actually now understandable why it would happen in the middle of a vacant parking lot that doesn't look like it belongs to a single building. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's not what we were going for, but I'm glad that you intimated that from it. That's at least what I think. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's I good think. that it, I guess it worked out. Um, we did end up finding a mall that was okay with it, but they quoted us $10,000 for a day. So after that, it was like, okay, we're, we're not shooting at a mall. You know, oh, you're a student? You're in debt? Oh, here. We'll yeah. just put an easy $10,000. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think with that one, actually, we didn't mention we were students, which is maybe why they oh, were okay with letting us do it in the sure. first place. But that's also why they quoted us such a high fee. And uh, we asked them, like, you know, are you sure you can't go any lower? And they're like, no, nah, this is just our rate. You know, we don't really, we don't need your business. Like, we're not going to negotiate on it. So that sure. was that. So we found a train station, um, part of the, like, Chicago, like, metro rail, whatever. And we just, we just, I went into the office and uh, I just asked them, like, hey, you know, I'm just a student. Can I just film something over in the corner of the parking lot? And they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't, can I swear on this? <laughs> yeah, you can, oh, okay, absolutely, yeah, yeah, sorry. please, Yeah, they're like, on. they're like, we don't give a shit, you know, just yeah. do whatever you want. And right. um, so, and you saw the lot, you know, nobody was there. Obviously, right. we weren't impeding anyone. Sure. Um, so, I mean, that was the first challenge we faced, but, like, if that had been, like, the worst of it, um, that would have been, this project wouldn't have been a breeze right. in comparison. The So, the, the, the last kind of scenes we filmed um, where the dude kind of, like, he pulls over, like, a couple, he pulls over once and, like, kind of threatens the kid, and then at the end, when, like, something lands on the van and, you know, kills the guy, spoiler alert, I guess. Um, yeah, <laughs> just cut that part out. Um... <laughs> We, we filmed that in this little cul-de-sac of this uh, little suburban neighborhood not too far away from where I grew up. And I we filmed there because it's just, like, on the edge of a forest preserve. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of parking and, like, it's a quiet area and there's nobody ever there. So we thought, like, okay, it'll be a breeze. And I called about getting a permit to film in the forest preserve itself, but they were, like, 
it, it was a lot of money. I mean, for like a full production, like an actual movie, it, it would have been nothing. But I mean, it was going to end up costing us like three or three and a half thousand dollars. Wow. And it's like, we we just can't afford that. I mean, this project, we, we had a five thousand dollar budget and like we, we used every single dime. Like we couldn't put any of that towards these location fees. And um, so we decided to not film in the preserve itself, just kind of at the edge of it inside the neighborhood. So we got the cops called on us, obviously, twice. No way. Yeah, the first cop that came up, um, he was super nice. He was just like, you know, hey, some people are complaining. We're like, oh, we're just students. You know, we'll be done in like an hour. And that was actually true at the time. But, um, you know, he left. And I guess somebody else called. Or maybe the same people called, you know. And when the second cop came, he's like, all right, yeah, we've had numerous complaints. Like, we have to kick you guys out. And I'm not exaggerating. Like, we were literally less than 30 minutes. Like, we had two shots we needed to get, and they were easy shots. So, was like, the film never actually completed? We did complete it, but we had to pack up the van with all the equipment, get everyone into the cars, move them over to neighborhoods, and we just found a different spot that wasn't ideal, but, like, for only two shots, it worked perfectly fine. Wow. Um, and it was just, like, it... But it extended the whole thing by, like, two hours, and it's, like, it was a school night, and... Everyone was tired. Most of the crew was not being paid because we just couldn't afford it. It was just other college it's kids. A student, yeah, it's a student yeah. project. And, um, you can get away with that at that, at that yeah, point. Yeah, and, and like nobody... Spirits weren't like terribly high to begin with because this kid was a fucking nightmare to yeah. work with. I mean, he's he was like eight. So if he's if he's if he sucks to work with, it's not his fault. You how'd know? you how'd you get this kid to jump on the project? We had that was another issue we had with casting. Casting generally was pretty easy, but for the kid it was hard because Again, it's like a student film, and it's about a child getting abducted. And, like, we were super upfront. Like, every, anybody that inquired, we gave them the whole script. And, like, um, we had, I think, about five people who, who booked a time to come in and, like, audition their kid. Only two of them showed up. So we didn't have a lot of choice. And one kid, he, he was, like, he was like an angel. Like, he was so polite, so well-behaved. He had, like, all the lines memorized. But, like, his actual delivery of the lines was, like really bad and he's a kid so obviously it's it's not gonna be yeah he... but this other kid that we did cast he actually delivered the lines like perfectly but he was a prima donna oh my god he was he was such a he was such a hassle like he was he had so <laughs> much energy and obviously at eight you expect a kid to have that level of energy but like his parents just did absolutely nothing to control him on set and so we cast him kind of with this understanding, like, this might be the harder choice, but if it pays off, then it'll be... Like, if he gives a good performance, it'll, it'll be worth it. I, I think it paid off for two reasons. A, you got a good actor. You got a good movie out of it. I think he actually did a pretty good performance. Okay, yeah. But B, it answers the age-old question as to, does fame make you a jerk? Or, does, or are you the jerk before the fame? I think that answers the question right For now. this kid, at least. Yeah. yeah. It was before the fame. I you mean... Know, does the egg come before the chicken? Absolutely. Yeah. And his, his family <laughs> sucked. Like, I'm not... I really shouldn't be bad-mouthing them, but... No, no, no. Let's do it. What's their name? I want to I wanna hear everything. I'm not going to give their names, but... <laughs> like, so we, it was a three-day shoot. We did, like, one night and then one full day, like, actually over 12 hours, and then one other, like, night, like, five-ish hours. Um... And for the full day shoot, that's where, like, the actual abduction scene happens. Um, I mean, we were out in this parking lot. There's no shade. Like, not that it was a terribly hot day, but just everyone was getting super sunburned. And it's long, and, you know, there's, like, nothing around to do. So for all the crew that aren't actually, like, on camera or on sound, they're just kind of sitting around all day, like, 
bored as hell. Getting... And that's that's what a real film set's like. Too. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, it's it's a lot of hurry up and wait. Yeah, but they're not being paid to be there. Was the problem? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's only so much you can kind of stretch people's patience with that. Sure. And um, it's just like the, this kid's parents were just doing nothing to like corral him. Like he was constantly running around, and like we would do a take, and then we'd cut it, and we'd set up for the next take. And he would just be halfway down the parking lot, like, running around in circles. And his parents were just kind of sitting around, like, oh, yeah, he's just doing his thing. Like, it's like, you know, yeah, I'm the director, but, like, I, I can't, I'm not going to grab the kid and drag him over. Of and, course, like, on yeah. some, at some point that needed to kind of happen. And, like, when we were breaking, before we break for lunch, uh, broke for lunch, I don't know, whatever. Um, <laughs> the, we, we had someone take everyone's lunch order. He was just going to run over to a sandwich shop, you know, pick up something and uh, bring it back. And so we'd keep shooting for, like, a half an hour while he picked it up. And um, after he took everyone's orders, um, the kid's family, they all just piled in their van and left. They didn't tell me. They didn't say, you know, hey, we're going out to lunch. They just said, like, bye. They waved as they drove by while we were setting up the next shot. They just ditched. Yeah, and so we're like, okay, I guess we're going to break for lunch. But, like, nobody had anything to eat because we were still waiting for the other guy to get back. (laughs) So we took, like... wasted time. We we took, like, two-hour lunch because we just had to wait for them to come back. Um, And on the last day of shooting where we we got kicked off that uh, parking lot, the... The family, so first off, the the dad had kind of, he told us in advance, like, he had to work super early on Monday morning, so Saturday night, he's like, you know, oh, if we could kind of be faster, um, that'd be great, and we told him, like, well, you don't need to come, like, the mom could just come, like, if that works for you guys, I don't know what your dynamic is, but, like, since obviously, we didn't say it, but, like, since you guys aren't doing jack shit to control your kid anyway, it doesn't matter, like, (laughs) um, but of course he comes anyway, and, uh, when we got kicked off our location and had to move over to the other spot, he was just going off on everyone. He's like, I have to wake up at 4 a.m. Like, I can't believe this. This is bullshit. You guys don't know what you're doing. And it's like, we told you not to come. Like, and you came anyway, and you're yelling at us. That's so lame. It was just, it sucked a lot. And it's that was like the end of the shoot, you know, basically. Sure. So it was like, that's the final note everyone left this project with. And it's just... Everyone was just in such bad spirits by the time we were done. That sucks, but you know what? As weird as it is to say, um, you know, I've been in the industry for a couple years now on the professional end, not talking about college shoots or high school shoots, but actually industry, industry. Yeah. Um, And you get to a point where you kind of miss those college shit shows. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I, I do at least anyway. All right. um, I'm praying I'll get there eventually. <laughs> this 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 example that I'm gonna bring up is actually not a, a college shit show. It was actually a high school shit show. Um, what happened was uh, my friend was shooting a spy movie. He was actually making the sequel to another one of his spy movies. It was it was a lot of fun. He had this whole entire character made up. He was the director, producer, screenwriter, and actor. Okay, and he would always be in the leather jacket. And he always had like the shades on. He was a really cool cat. Up until this one moment where we were shooting in a park, and as many spy movies have, this had guns. Yeah. Uh, we were using prop guns, and um, we used Sharpie and we colored out the orange tips. <laughs> and we were kind of in a more secluded part of the park that was kind of obscured by the foliage of trees. But um, we would see people pass by. Maybe they were walking their dog. Maybe they were just going hiking or whatever it was. And we would just tell them, hey, we just want to let you know, we're, we're shooting a film, don't worry, everything's fine, we're just shooting a, we're just doing a, a high school project. A lot, mo- Everyone seemed to respond to it very well. 
and then about 20 minutes later after like the third person passed by i remember this cop kind of walked over the hill with his gun drawn it wasn't he wasn't he didn't have it pointed at us but he was holding his uh his sidearm just kind of off to the side very nonchalantly lazily and he said all right everybody stop the movie movie's over yeah that's a wrap and we're like is this serious and i was like oh my god this is serious and luckily you know and i really hate to say this but we were in you know the whitest suburbs in the whitest town next to the safest city where i grew up thousand oaks um so our white privilege made sure we didn't get shot yeah that's really what it was is that because we were white and white privileged culture we didn't get shot you might have heard the story already right uh you guys were different group yeah (laughs) we were a different group unfortunately i mean i I hate to say that but that's just the truth so we were let off easy what he did was he had us pile our propped guns uh off into this this pile to our left and then we kind of stood in the middle with our hands behind our back interlaced fingers on our knees and then one at a time the cop would have us stand up and he'd write down our name on a notepad and then we once our name was written down he was very organized he would then have us move to a new pile a new grouping of, of people that were made for the people that were already checked off. Um, what ended up happening was this guy who I love dearly, who I'm still friends with to this day, who was a real cool cat, dressed in his leather with the shades, and was ready to produce this film where you know he was directing and screenwriting. It was going to be a really awesome accomplishment. He started to cry. Yeah. I and mean, I mean, how do you not? I would. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think I would have too. You know, I I felt so bad for the guy, yeah. and he. We all, afterwards, we, we were walking home, and it did not help that on his way out, he sees eight other SUV cop cars just lined up outside the park as if the shooting was about to happen. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, they prepared for war. And with reason, of course. Yeah. I guess what had happened was someone way off in the distance who we did not consult about our shoot just saw it, and apparently they reported, uh, these kids are playing with rifles, you know, and... Yeah, I, I kind of mock this person, but at the same time, like I also understand it now that I'm older and now that I'm seeing this world that we live in. It's yeah. it's crazy, and you you can't be you can't be extra careful in these in these times, you know. Yeah, yeah I definitely um, can. But that's crazy though, in terms of the involvement of you know getting the the city uh, in your shoot. I'm actually uh, really surprised to hear that you didn't just go for the guerrilla tactic of filming, which would be just just shooting it, just running and gunning on your shoot. Yeah, I mean, well, technically we did because we didn't have a permit for where we were shooting, and I guess we needed one because we got kicked off. Right. Well, the yeah. second time you did, but the you 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 were able to get the permission from the from the train yard, right? Yeah, yeah, we didn't have trouble with them. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. They were just like, go ahead. And... Yeah, they didn't even need like we we didn't give them like a written like permit. Okay. Was, I guess that is technically guerrilla then. Kinda. I mean, that it was like it you know down. we got kids on set. We got. I mean, oh yeah, because that's another thing. The kid, his two siblings were there, of course. Like, why not just bring the whole family? <laughs> you know, family event. Yeah, yeah, it really Can't was. It. Yeah, and I mean, so we we really tried to treat it like as professionally as we could. Uh, and we had a permit for the gun. It was a fake. It was just like a rubber block, basically. Right. Um, but we had a permit still. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how valid that would be in anyone's eyes, but. We had a document from our school saying it was okay. Um, Yeah, it was... I don't know. I mean, the makeup artist dropped the ball tremendously. Uh, Our sound designer just completely abandoned the project after stringing us along. Like, It really just wasn't a pleasant experience all around. (laughs) But again, I will say this. When you guys watch Popsy on Vimeo, 
it really is a good movie. It is well made. I think Max really brought together the story incredibly for now, especially knowing a lot of the behind the scenes and the yeah. chaos that he had to endure. He put that together pretty nicely with a ribbon on top. Oh, if I do say so. Oh, myself. you. I'm blushing. You guys can't see it, but I'm <laughs> blushing tremendously. It's not the oppressive heat. How big was your crew? Uh, I think it was like 12 or 13. Okay. Yeah. That's actually a pretty, that's still a really good size. Yeah. But yeah. so many moving parts just didn't fall into place. No. Do you think that, do you think that there was a lesson there, uh, to, to make sure that that doesn't happen again when you go about that who you're working with? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, about half the people on there I'd never actually worked with before. It was like friend of a friend type of thing because i mean again it was unpaid so it's just like whoever is willing to work on it will take you know mm -hmm. and yeah. um i would if i guess if i were doing this again i would definitely like some I, I would rather take a smaller crew but a larger workload per person than like basically trust strangers yeah you know maybe the other people in the crew would disagree with me on that but well i mean the, the other crew the other people in the crew they didn't earn your opinion on that no, 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 they did not. It no, was uh, they, didn't, they didn't win you on that one. Yeah, that's that's on them. That's not on you. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, I definitely just bit off more than I could chew. You know, like I, uh, I had never done something with that size of a crew, really, mm -hmm. where like I was directing. I had never done something with like a kid. I'd never done something with that big of a budget. I had to buy the van. Like that wasn't a rental or. Like, oh my god! Was, yeah, we we actually bought that. I got it. How registered. much was that? Van with your five thousand dollars budget. We got a super good deal actually. <laughs> was it, it was thousand dollars. No, it was a thousand. Um, it was a nineteen ninety Ford Econo line, which um, I don't remember exactly, but I think that actually was the type of van in the short story originally. Okay. Not the right color, but um, we just uh, this guy had owned it for like twenty five years and just like barely ever drove it. I mean, it had like a hundred thousand miles or something, but like for a car of that age, that's practically nothing and it really is nothing yeah he, that's that's amazing he was just kind of desperate to get rid of it um because like it was his dad's and i guess his dad had passed away recently and so you know he was just he didn't want to see it because it was like a reminder yeah do you of, still have that van no no we sold we actually sold it for two thousand <laughs> so we, we got a profit <laughs> it made me briefly consider maybe i should just get into flipping like cheaper cars because seriously we made a tidy profit on it but i think with that it was we just got very lucky with the acquisition. And also the guy that bought it was like him and his brother started this business and they, they needed to just build a huge fleet of vans like overnight. So they sure. were just like, we'll take anything. We'll take anything. Know? And there wow. were issues with that van that I was going to tell him about, but he just showed up, gave me the cash. It's like, all right, dude. All right. Cheers. Well, yeah. Yeah. 2000. Yeah. Hopefully that guy though. doesn't hear this podcast. <laughs> track me down. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the components of that story kind of have to do with just where you were. Yeah, I don't think I think some of the things that you did might have been even tougher or even easier depending on where it took place in terms of filming. How was it filming in Chicago? You know, like the city of Chicago is actually pretty easy to work with. Um, I've had to do some stuff with acquiring like permission. Like we filmed at Union Station, which is the big uh, train station downtown. Not for this project, but something else. And um, they were super 
easy to work with um, the, the Chicago permit office, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's easy to get a police officer. Like if you need a, if you have a gun or something, technically you're supposed to have an officer with you right, in the city. Right. And yep, that's the law. Yeah. You know, they're, they're super compliant. They don't charge a lot for students, but we weren't filming this like in the city was the issue. We were filming this in the suburbs where oh, like so they yeah. don't deal with this basically ever. Cause it's just out of their jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to quote us. Like, you know, so they just kind of make up these numbers and they just, play it as they see it i guess sure so i mean i get it It was hard to film in the suburbs was it easy was it was it easier to live in the suburbs i i i'm a suburb kid myself yeah so i actually early on in my life i found it i never really thought twice about being in the suburbs and i'm an only child so i i think part of being an only child is the naivety that is it's a good level of naivety by the way but to just appreciate life you know i you know appreciate what you have that's I think just something that comes innate in only children because uh, you don't really think about the things that you don't have. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's the equivalent of if you ask a fish about the water, the fish will say, what water? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's just how it is. Right. Yeah. It's just how it is. Uh, so at the beginning, I found it really easy. And then I went to summer camp and I, I experienced some sort of level of camaraderie. And then I came back and then life was, for the first time ever, boring. Oh, really? Yeah. And then, and then, and then... Not as not as boring as it as it was later on. You can imagine how I felt coming back from college. Yeah. <laughs> suddenly feeling very restricted with my parents living over, looming, seemingly looming over my shoulder, and you know just li- kind of living under their uh, powers again that existed during high school that I had totally forgotten about. You never know a good thing until it's gone, and so yeah. suddenly all all this freedom I had in college, gone just yeah. instantly. Well, did you did you have like a lot of good friends in high school when you went off to college? I had a few. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, like I had this weird f- phase in my freshman year of college where, uh, you know, I was a theater kid, and some of those some of those shows had like hundreds of kids. Yeah. In the cast, which is actually really remarkable that we were able, they, that that the director from that from that school managed to get over a hundred kids in some shows yeah. really amazing for some that of the big actually. musical yeah <laughs> uh, for some of the musicals out there um i made a fatal mistake in my high school time of believing in something that i would say all the time that everybody would say all the time and that is i love you hmm. we all would say it to each other and i this is another part of the naivety that comes with being an only child is that you believe in that kind of thing and okay. i I grew really attached to that. Who was telling you that? Just like everyone in the theater department? Everybody, yeah. So we, we would do this... Um, there was this one really big bonding thing that we would do in theater where uh, it was called just the circle. And right before any big show, we would host our circle. And the circle, we would do these games, uh, you know, just to kind of get like everybody warmed up for the show. The crew was involved too. So yeah. it was a cast and crew uh, involved in constantly... You know, just just like warming each other up. We had these different games, like we uh, we played. Um, oh God! What, uh, what, I I one time got to lead a circle, and I actually uh, did like a, like a like a, like sock and bop em, uh, fight. Rock'em sock'em robot. Rock'em sock'em robot gotcha. kind of All fight right. where I actually got like these inflatable uh, like uh, yeah, punching fist, bags, yeah. and we got uh, people to fight against each other. There was another thing where like we had like. I don't know. We we had like a like a holding breath competition. We did this, all these really silly traditions, but the biggest thing, of course, was just the the bonding. And, and the seniors did their senior speeches 
talking about how uh, emotionally attached they were to everybody. And I believed that watching every senior graduate. And then I became a senior, and I believed every word that I was saying. Hmm. And that was a fatal mistake because when I came back my freshman year of college and I started to hit people up, no one answered the phone. Yeah. No one bothered to text back. And I had like this, uh, like the motive to one of the Toy Story villains of just being completely neglected. I kind of had like this little phase where I felt very neglected, like a like an old forgotten toy. Yeah, okay. Uh, that might be a little dramatic, but I did. And I, I was kind of depressed. And that was actually my freshman, my the summer after freshman year was actually a really lonely year for me. Yeah. Uh, okay. I imagine that would suck then coming back to the suburbs to that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so the suburbs became, you know, suburbs are so quiet. You can't just go out and enjoy the city. Yeah. And, uh, in that time I needed the city because I just went from, I just came from San Francisco state, you know, it's hustle and bustle everywhere you go right, yeah. in San Francisco. And, and that's like the most eccentric personalities. It's an exceptionally like, yeah, I don't know if dense is the right word, but it's like a, Oh yeah. Yeah. No, tight city, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I was in a fraternity. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of the events were just, you know, out of the norm for me. For the first time in my life, I had a group of people I called brothers. Yeah. You know, and even if, even if brother isn't legit to the to the actual definition of a biological brother, to me, I hold on to that. Yeah. Because I don't have that. Yeah. And that felt kind of cool, and it, it it brought out the best in me, honestly. Okay. It yeah. really did. I, I I'm proud of my fraternity, uh, Alpha Epsilon Pi. I still have my paddles hanging in my room. He does. They're, yeah. They're very uh, tasteful. In Thank how you. They're, how they're displayed, yeah. Thank you. That really means a lot. I, you know, I. Uh, they mean a lot to me. They're, each paddle, I have three paddles. They're representative of my three littles: Aaron Gutman, Brandon Glacian, and Corey Singer. If you guys are listening, hope you guys stay tuned. I may name drop you in the future again. You guys will become celebrities overnight. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. You never do know. Sorry, I'm looking at the paddle. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, I have I have a special thing with the suburbs because the things I love about it and there are things I, I dislike about it. And I'm sure that over time, as I get older, as I age, as I as I gear towards making a family, I'll want to go back to the suburbs at some point. Yeah. I, at this point, I don't know. Okay. You know. Yeah, I had a really different experience because like my my freshman year of college, I liked. I mean, I had some friends, but I didn't join a fraternity. I didn't have any like really good friends, just kind of like casual acquaintances. You know. Which college was that? I went to DePaul University, which is in Chicago. Not DePaul with a W, which everyone always thinks I say. Um, fuck DePaul. Um, <laughs> I actually don't know anything about that school. Um, but it's it's in Chicago. And, like, I grew up in the suburbs, like, an hour or so outside of the city. And so, for me, like, Chicago was always just, like, it's, you know, your family goes there on a Saturday. And, like, you go see the tourist attractions, like, type of things. Maybe you go to, like, a fancy restaurant downtown every now and again. But, like living there was such a huge like difference in what I was used to I guess a culture shock of sorts just because it's so dense I mean especially like compared to like Los Angeles <laughs> um it's a lot more concentrated and it's like it feels like almost claustrophobic to me at least so when I went home to the suburbs after my first summer it was like I felt like I could kind of breathe a bit and like all my friends from high school were back home for the most part and it's like you know, in a year, nothing about, like, the town I had grew, grown up in had really changed or anything. Like, maybe one restaurant had closed down or something. But yeah, it, it, I, it still felt like going home. I know that feeling. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. then, like, after my senior year, knowing I was going to move out here, but I still had, like, three or four months before that happened, 
the town felt like really different. Only like a couple of my friends were living back home. You know, I had one in Virginia, one in like Texas. Um, and, uh, one of them was still like in Illinois, but like, you know, an hour and a half away from us. And it's like all these restaurants had shut down. All these new ones were moving in. This forest preserve had gotten bulldozed and a new mall was getting built. And it's like, I'm ready to leave. Like this doesn't feel like home anymore. You wow. Know? And that was, uh, I mean, I'd already kind of made the decision to move out to California before I got that feeling, but I did not feel nearly as homesick moving here as I thought I would because I'd kind of slowly gone over that, like, over the course of being in college just because my hometown had just changed so much. Sure, and I know that you came to California, you know, obviously for the film industry. There's a much bigger film industry out here than in Chicago. Is there anything in Chicago? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Everyone talks about, like, oh, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD. Have you ever heard of those shows? No. No. No one one outside of Chicago has heard of those shows. And even in Chicago, like, nobody watches those. Like, you hear about them because they they film around the city. But I think the biggest show filming there is uh, Empire, which is decently big, I guess. I think the biggest reason Empire is famous is because of that whole Jesse Smollett thing that happened, you know, six months ago or whatever that was. Um, Sure. I mean, there are occasionally movies. I know, like, Jupiter Ascending, do you remember that one? came out, like, five years ago with... It rings a bell. I I, it didn't do very well, did no, it? No, it was, it was a bomb. But it was the biggest... It was the first movie uh, that had a budget of over $100 million that all the principal photography was done in Chicago. Okay. And it was a disaster. Um, <laughs> so if that movie had done well, maybe, you know, the film industry would have maybe, like, had a bit of a spark there. Yeah, but and it's, it's like, clearly the city's fault. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and I mean, it sucks. Though. That's the thing. Like, the city had nothing to do with that movie being bad. It's just, but because it was bad, now other companies are not going to be incentivized. Like, the production company that made that, I think, had to go bankrupt or something. And so now they can't finance more movies in Chicago. And it's like, more stuff's just not going to come from that. Um, I mean, there is opportunity. Most of the people I went to college with are in Chicago. But I got a, a pretty frightening statistic my senior year of college, which was probably like the biggest motivator for why I moved here was that um, of grads from DePaul, uh, within five years of graduating, only 10% of students that graduated with a film degree were actually working in entertainment, (laughs) which is a terribly low number. Yeah. Um, So I felt like I don't want my degree to be a waste, you know? Sure. So I'm going to move somewhere where there's a higher chance. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, now, now that you say it, I actually would be curious to find out uh, what my what the percentages of my school. I don't even know if they if they've done that statistic, if they've done that study. Yeah. But like I like, it is so tough to to break in for for people from San Francisco or anywhere else outside of a major uh, a major production city. So like I th- I would think that right now, the major cities in North America that if you're born there and you have an interest in film, you already have a leg up above others. Mm. Obviously, Los Angeles. Um, I would say Miami. Really? Or Yeah, because they have some sort of an industry in, in Florida. It's not as big. Yeah. I, I don't know what they do outside of uh, Disney over yeah. there, but, you know, that exists. New York. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. And then uh, the newest one, Atlanta. Yeah, Atlanta. And then sure. if you're in post-production, I know Toronto is big on yeah especially animation i think yeah animation and cgi yeah a lot of the biggest stuff comes from toronto uh vancouver 
Oh yeah, Van- of, yeah. Oh, am I thinking of Vancouver or uh, both? Toronto is usually for post, and Vancouver is more for production. You're right. Yes, yeah. You're Vancouver right. I think is largely they have huge rebates, um, and on top of that, it's just such a generic looking city. You right. can make it look like anything. Right. So I remember when I first started seeing movies pop up out of out of Atlanta, I was like, uh, okay, it's yeah. kind of a random <laughs> place. But I think the first the first thing that ever caught my eye from Atlanta was actually The Walking Dead. Yeah, probably for me too. Yeah. yeah. Um, just, you know, huge production quality, uh, and, and great story and kind of this untold part of the country to a certain extent, not untold cause they're, we, we know about Georgia, we yeah. know about Atlanta significance in America up to a certain extent. Yeah. But it's like largely unrepresented in film and television until, right. until recently. Until recently. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I, I've noticed, I've noticed Atlanta has been getting a lot of representation. The other major city that is beginning to get a lot of recognition these days in films is Oakland. Really? Yeah. There's I... a lot of movies straight out of Oakland uh, that have been produced as of the past couple of years. And my, my friend who does journalism, uh, he brought it up to me and I, I didn't really think about it. He wrote a whole entire article about it. And I, it kind of blew my mind. I was like, I had no idea. I There's didn't There's a whole entire either. Oakland yeah. sub-industry. Till right now. Yeah. Till right <laughs> now. Yeah. It's a very new thing. What do you, I mean, do you uh, know? Sorry to bother you. Oh, okay, for sure. Yeah, that was that was based in Oakland, or at least it, or at least it was filmed in Oakland. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what else on the top of my mind. This is a quiz, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Oh god, if you don't I'm failing pass. the test. Yeah. I'm getting how many how many answers do I need before? You need twenty. Uh, you, you should just give me the F right now. Okay. All okay. Right. Gotcha. You guys can't see it, but I'm stamping his paper F. Uh, just like actual school. Yeah. <laughs> Just like my actual Talking grades. about school. It's getting me reminiscent of failing. Yeah. Oh, doesn't that make Or nostalgic, feel... yeah. Yeah. There you go. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, but then you came to California. Yeah. Uh, because you were you were afraid of being in that, that ten the, not being in that ten percent. Yeah. Even if I was in that like ten percent of students that did land an entertainment job, my fear was that like I'd kinda of skate by for some years and then like Ten years down the line, like, you know, the Chicago still is just not doing well. And there's just not a lot of jobs. And, like, I can't find work. And all my job experience is, like, useless for any other field. And, like, I was afraid of basically just kind of getting stuck. Because it's a lot easier to move across the country when you're 22 versus, like, 32. Or yeah. even really just maybe, like, 25 or something. What was that move like? Was that was that kind of a big risk for you? Or, or was it pretty easy? It was kind of risky because my girlfriend and I had never lived together before. <laughs> okay. So we moved out here together. How long had you guys dated before you guys moved out uh, here? Five-ish years. You yeah. dated for five years prior? Before moving out here. But we never lived together because we were in college. Sure. And, yeah, we went to different schools. And Wow. Um, How'd you meet her? Yeah, high school. High school. Yeah. High school Math sweetheart? class, yeah. Oh. Mr. Ghoulish, if you're listening to this. Ever. Mr. Ghoulish? Yeah. That's the best dating app I've ever heard. Of. Yeah, it was it was quite <laughs> it's the a matchmaker. Match. Yeah, um, quite the formula. Oh Good yeah, job, Mr. Ghoulish. Yeah, and um, so that that was kind of risky, just in a sense of like, what if we just don't live well together? Like, you know, what if we have different hygiene habits or different like just sure. general and, and, habits? And the verdict. It's been fine. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's been little things like, oh, I wish you'd clean the dishes more, or like, I wish you would cook more, or whatever. Sure, but. It, we've never like had a fight over any of it and like generally i guess it's like we've been together long enough that it's like if if we really had a serious issue over like not running the dishwasher like i don't think we would have gotten to the point we're at you sure know? yeah um who, who snores she does she's yeah. sorry madam um, uh who's the clean one neither of us <laughs> yeah, yeah who ends up cleaning i clean the kitchen 
she does the rest. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I do all the cooking though, so I feel okay. like that's kind of similar. Okay. Are you, are you quite the chef? I, you know, not to toot my own flute or anything. Toot my own horn. Whatever the phrase is. It's toot your own horn. Yeah. I like flute better. Toot my own flute. It rhymes, you know, so yeah. I feel like that Toot my way. flute? Yeah. Do you toot your flute? Anyway, yeah. go on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you guys had to hear that. I'm so sorry. You should like loop that numerous times. Uh, that'll, you should just make that. That could be your intro. <laughs> You're listening to Toot the Flute. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Moving across the country. I don't know. Um, really finding a job was kind of the big thing. Um, the When we moved out here, I kind of accidentally landed a job at this other company that does search engine optimization, which is like an advertising thing. And um, it was just like a my girlfriend's co-worker's friend worked at this company and they knew you know I was looking for work. And so I went in to interview, not thinking I'd get it, but then they offered it to me. It's like, okay, well, I don't have any job lined up. So like, right. I kind of have to take it. Sure, and yeah. I hated it. I was completely miserable. So I really? left, yeah, uh, as soon as I could, basically. Once I had enough, like, saved up that, like, okay, okay, I can I can afford to be unemployed for a little bit while I look for new work. How much time did you give yourself to be unemployed? Two months. Two months. Yeah. So, I'd I mean, it's a good amount of time, but yeah. you, you had to hustle in those Oh, two yeah, months. yeah. I mean, I got hired in exactly a month. Okay. When I quit, so it worked out, I guess. Got you. And now that's the current job you have now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you're so, working. So this is actually, guys, how I met Max is that he is the production assistant. He's the production assistant runner at my company. Um, and yeah, he does a great job at driving. Oh, yeah. But you know what? His talents are not being uh, utilized at this time. So if you guys want to contact Max Richter, get him on a project, what is the best way to contact you? Uh, well, you could look at my email maxrichtercreative.com and on there you can find all of my information uh, I guess my email address best one to reach me at would be richtermax34 at gmail all this information will be in the description of this episode yeah um, yeah if you're doing anything that is more involved than running I'll probably take you up on it so just putting that out there <laughs> seriously guys Max is a really um, he's a really committed guy uh, I've seen some of his work, not just talking about Popsy, but some of the other short films he's done. He's had me read some of the drafts to his scripts, and we'll talk about that in a, in a second, but I just want to let you guys know that his talents are not being used the way they should be, and a guy like him should be on your writing team. So please give this guy, uh, shoot this guy an email. Uh, you won't regret it. I promise you that. Should I, should I like slide you the money now for that plug, or like after the episode? After. Okay, cool. After, after. You should cut, you're going to cut that out, right? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I typically just throw it up there. Okay. I hope I remember yeah. it. Okay. okay, cool. Um, I won't remind you then. But now to woo the producers who are now listening on this episode who want to know about you as the writer, uh, you know, you've kind of been working. You, I, I remember reading a little bit of this draft uh, of what you're working on. Uh, this this start to a cinematic universe, is that what, am I saying it correctly? Yeah, I have like an out, like a basic outline. I say basic, but it's actually like forty pages long. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was not. Honestly, like I, I work because I don't do anything most days, like especially this month. So it's like, well, all right, you know, time to plug away at it. Um, I don't know, should I just like launch into it? Or... Uh, you can uh, say as much as you want. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, uh, I would, I would just go based off of a synopsis and not give away too de- too many details because you never know who's listening to this episode. Yeah, yeah. you don't want someone to take your idea. Yeah. So, completely up to you. Okay. 
Um, so I'll just, uh, I'll start at the beginning and read every single word of my outline and, um, yep. just I'll rely on the goodwill of yep. the listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. Wait, actually, you know what? Instead of, <laughs> instead of telling me, uh, instead of telling me just like off, off the top of your head, okay. what your, what your plot is, what your cinematic universe is, All right. I'm going to do something that they tested us at, with, um, in college, which is. Uh, the 30 second elevator pitch. Okay. Well, I remember when we joined a cinema club in college, uh, when I joined the cinema club there on the very first day, I don't know why this was a first day activity every single year. This is the only event I actually went to at cinema club. Okay. I never really attended any other event. <laughs> all right. All right. Cause I, I just was not a good student like that, but <laughs> I, I, I always went to it and they did the same thing every year where we got into groups, we created a, a film like hypothetically, just verbally. And then, uh, someone in the cinema club would play the role of a producer minding his own business in an elevator. You walk into the elevator and you have the 30 seconds before the door opens to pitch your idea to this very almighty producer. Okay. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Okay. And you're going to tell me about your cinematic universe. Ready? I'm going to try to tell you. Yeah. Okay. Ready? Three. The elevator's open. Okay. Two. You see the producer. I'm nervous. One. You're now in the elevator and go. So you know how dimensions work. Sure. One dimension is a line. Two uh -huh. dimensions are uh, polygons. Yeah. And uh, three dimensions is what we exist in. Imagine a creature that is two-dimensional. It only exists on a plane of circles and squares and triangles and things like that. Now imagine if a creature like this saw a three-dimensional creature like us, something full of shards of bone and fluids and meat and all this sorts of stuff that it just has no concept of what it's even looking at. Now imagine we're living in three dimensions, right? What if we were to see something that lived in a fourth dimension? We saw, like, I don't know what that sounds like to you, but it probably conjures some vague kind of terrifying imagery. That is essentially at the core of what H.P. Lovecraft, which was a 20th century, century writer, writer, tequila started to hit me, uh, 20th century writer, uh, really gets at, which is sort of this fear of this impossibly unknowable stuff and so this cinematic universe is a series of connected movies that all take place sharing the same ominous otherworldly threat but individually different stories so Very that was probably what like a minute or something like that yeah it was it was about a minute yeah 10 yeah. seconds there i wasn't gonna stop you though yeah because I, right. I, was, I was getting into it okay and, you yeah, know yeah. It, it sounds interesting though so is it about is does, does your story kind of rely on the visual aspect of what a 3d image looks like compared to a 4d image is that lack of visuals actually lack of visuals yeah so there's a a quote from lovecraft maybe it's most famous um the oldest and most powerful of mankind's emotions is fear and the oldest and most powerful kind of fear is fear of the unknown jj abrams kind of operates off of this with all of his movies he has this like mystery box idea where like he, when he writes stories, he kind of, he, he throws in these plot hooks just because they're mysterious, knowing that there's probably never going to be an answer to these types of things. Because at the end of the day, like more often than not, the answer to any mystery is almost never going to be as satisfying as the mystery itself. And so you have to kind of leave things up to the imagination to some extent. Um, I know that seems like a very, like... I'm not actually saying like a politician type of talk. No. <laughs> I'm just saying words that don't mean anything. Listen, a politician, we got to keep on the hook because 
we ask for answers and he's not giving us answers or he or she is not giving us answers but Very progressive yeah. in this case though it's not about you not giving us answers or anything it's more so about you know you're I think the the real heart of a great script of a great movie is the philosophy yeah of it have you ever heard the term cosmic horror I have but I couldn't say I could define okay it. it's kind of what this is getting at it's kind of a So maybe the best way to explain this. Do you know how big the universe is? No. Do you have any way to conceptualize how big the universe is? No. Yeah. So do you know how, how much a light year is in distance? Do you know what a light year is? No. Okay. A light year is how far light travels in a year. Oh, well, so I knew that, but yeah. okay. Yeah. You don't know the... I mean, I don't know the exact number either. That's what it's, I... It's super far. Light, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So how far I can travel in 365 days... It's a lot. It's a very high number. Um, the closest star to Earth, or to our sun, rather, is uh, it's called Alpha Centauri. It's about 4.6 light years away. Um, I can make it. Yeah, yeah, of course. In, uh, <laughs> it's not every astronaut ever. Yeah. <laughs> In um, 1977, NASA launched a probe called Voyager 1 which is pretty famous. Um, I've heard of it. Since yep. the 80s, it has been traveling at a speed of 17 kilometers per second out of our solar system. It is the fastest moving man-made object ever, and it's been moving on a beeline towards Alpha Centauri for about 40 years, Amazing. give or take. In that span of time, it has traveled uh, over 13.6 billion miles away from Earth. Um it would take over 40,000 years for Voyager 1 to reach Alpha Centauri at that speed. And this is the closest star to ours in the entire galaxy, our galaxy. So how does that relate to cosmic horror? Does that make you feel insignificant, hearing a fact like that? Sure, yeah. Do you I ever mean... hear facts about space and just think, how on earth does anything I do or anything anybody ever does matter? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. That's sure. essentially at the heart of it. That no matter what you do, no matter what anyone does, basically we're completely insignificant. Just pieces of dust floating in an infinite abyss. Does cosmic does cosmic horror kind of build off of nihilism? Oh, yeah, definitely. I would say it does. Did you see the movie Annihilation? I loved it. Okay. I mean, the, the little alien encounter thing at the end. It's freaky. What are you watching? You Where don't know. You yeah, no yeah. one no one knows. We we don't know. That's the thing. It's yeah. creepy because it's just completely unknowable. That's it's a alien. movie that I walked out of feeling this visceral feeling I've never felt before where um I was scared and yet fascinated and entranced by the beauty while also being seduced by the fact that I just don't know anything. Yeah. You know? And and that that's like a really weird combination. I don't know how to explain that. Yeah. But I've never felt that turned upside down to the point where my I felt lightheaded walking out of that. Yeah, theater. for sure. I mean, that that little, whatever, doppelganger thing it is at the end, alien, you know. <laughs> sure. We don't know what it is. There's a line in the movie where, you know, they're asking Natalie Portman's character, like, you know, what does it want? She says, I don't know. And then she says, I don't know if it even does want. We don't know if she hurts it. We don't know if it was trying to hurt her. We, we don't know anything about it. It was completely unknowable. It exists on a different scale of morality and existence than we do. And it's scary because... 
even if there's no ill intent behind it, and even if it doesn't necessarily have any, like, malicious designs or plans, it's scary because it's actively destroying our planet just by its very existence. I mean, the movie kind of, and the book, I guess, uh, implies that this zone would have just kept growing if, you know, they hadn't set it on fire or whatever. And we don't even know why setting it on fire did what it did. Right. I mean, there's this... I think humans are kind of built to rely on hope. Uh, there's a quote from Nietzsche, um, a man can survive almost any how if he has a why. And I think we read a book in college called Man's Search for Meeting about meeting, about a uh, Holocaust survivor, basically, like how he got through that process. And not just how he survived the Holocaust, but like how did he live afterwards knowing the world he was living in. And it's like you have to give yourself a reason to live. You have to find a purpose. You have to hope that there's something worth living for. And cosmic horror is the idea of like, well, no, there's not. Fuck you. Like, <laughs> and it's this kind of scary, like, sense of dread that just like sits with you. And it, I think it's scarier than like ghosts or, or, or mummies or, you know, whatever kind of typical monsters. Cause those rely on, on a, a basic like predatory instinct we have of like, I don't want to be predated by something else. I don't want to be eaten. I don't want to get killed. Whatever. Yeah. Those are basic survival instincts. But we live in a world now, I mean, at least in America for the most part, where, like, we don't need to worry about day-to-day -day survival, mm -hmm. you know? But So then we have to find reasons to keep living. And then the more we learn about, like, our galaxy, about the universe, about everything, the more that kind of realization starts to hit you. It's like, how do I find something that's worth living for? Sure. You know? I, there's some people who struggle with that. My, my curiosity is, is this, though. Um... It is a relatable feeling, but it's also a, a little bit of a tall order for anybody to just create something that actually accomplishes that visceral feeling of insignificance uh, and its connection to the universe. How do you aim to accomplish that? Uh, is it with the lack of visuals that you that kind you of expressed, or I mean, you're forty pages into this. What is your plan? Yeah. Um, and this isn't an outline for a specific. What script. is your plan to ruin my self-esteem? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, see, the the whole thing, H.P. Lovecraft, with all of his stories, it's like the Cthulhu mythos is what it's called. What he was kind of getting at is this idea of, like, all of his stories kind of follow some formula of, like, there's a guy, it's always like a white guy living in the Northeast United States, um, who he inevitably finds, like, he's like an archaeologist or historian, and he finds some sort of, um ruin or site or whatever that he needs to investigate he investigates it and then while he's there uh they start to find out oh this wasn't made by humans this was made by some ancient civilization that's like maybe not human and then inevitably there'll, there'll be some encounter with these like otherworldly beings the great old ones the elder gods they've got a bunch of names but basically there's these there are these beings that exist outside of three-dimensional space and in every story um the the protagonists even if they do kind of manage to win whatever particular conflict they get brought into, it's only, like, just barely. Like, I didn't really stop this unknowably infinite entity from consuming the Earth. I just kind of stopped it from killing me, you know? Or, like, even if they do survive, they end up going insane. Or a lot of times his characters will end up just killing themselves. Like, it'll be written as a journal and the last line's like, I'm going to blow my brains out now. <laughs> Obviously, it's not written like that, but, you know. Um... So kind of the idea behind the cinematic universe, because all of his work is public domain now, because he wrote all of this uh, almost 100 years ago, um, is tie together a lot of these ideas, uh, a lot of these like entities in this mythos, and kind of tie that into like American history um, and try to 
sort of like weave this series of movies that take place at different points in time, all sharing the same universe, but like you don't necessarily need to see all of them to understand what's going on in this particular movie, um, which is a bit of a tall order. It is, it is, yeah. but I mean, I mean, good for you for being up to the challenge. You're certainly not a guy who gets discouraged by challenge. I mean, look at how far you've come. I guess, yeah. What do you mean you guess? Uh, you, I mean, uh, let's talk about the fact that you took a, a Stephen King novel and you, you were able to create Popsy with not just pure determination, but, but a forced rigor that went into it. Then... You move, you just casually make the move, risk putting everything on the line with your girlfriend to California. Mm. Uh, you're one of many who have sacrificed everything to get here. Yeah. And then on top of that, uh, you know, you have decided to take on this tall order of this script that I'm even having a little bit of trouble to boggle my head around. I'm sure I'm not the only listener here who's as dumb as me. No, it's well. I'm being very vague. Is is kind of the issue? Um, I guess if you want to look at like some movies that I, I would say similarly accomplish kind of what I'm going for. Um, John Carpenter's like I think it's called like the Darkness trilogy. It's like the Thing, uh, oh, yeah. Prince of Darkness, and the Mouth of Madness. Those yeah. do a pretty good job. I mean, the Thing in the Thing, that's kind of like an eldritch abomination. It's this thing that like. I mean, it wants to kill the people. It wants to live, but we don't really know why it's here. Maybe it just crash landed. We don't know. Is this the alien that piloted the craft? Was this just some bacteria that was on the ship? We don't know. Like, is it malicious or is this just kind of what the thing is? Like, but it's it's a, a nightmare to look at, and you want it dead just for its very existence. Sure. You yeah. know, um, I'd say Annihilation is a great example in kind of a less uh, gory sense, more of like a. I don't know, metaphysical way. Sure, um, yeah. Yeah, or you could read some H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely want to read some. I, I'm not just, you know, kind of drawn to this H.P. Lovecraft just because of his stories, but also because, I mean, that that, that name. That's, that's a, cool that's name. a really yeah. wild name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a wild dude. T- tremendously racist. I should put that out there. If, okay, that's Yeah, if you ever get into any of his stuff, you should just know up front, like, this dude was seriously flawed okay yeah that's that it's actually good to know it's a fair warning to our listeners out there there's a great book actually called lovecraft country it was written not by lovecraft by a different guy a few years ago and it kind of it's like a lovecraftian story but it race in like the american midwest in the 1950s plays a huge role and so it's kind of like a meta commentary on i guess separating the art from the artist like you can appreciate something someone made while understanding they were not a good person sure know? yeah yeah and we, we need a lot more of that nowadays uh too because like i knew someone who um this is just like i'm, I'm kind of just kind of going off a little side rant based off of what you said a, a lot of our a lot of our current millennial culture uh is very much um so rigid with their morals and i i respect the i respect the strictness with the morals but something that something that obama uh, spoke about a little bit was that um, our rigidness is so unaccepting nowadays that we lose sight as to who our allies are. Yeah. And so I'm not going to say Al Franken is an ally. He did something that I don't think is acceptable in the professional no, uh, world. Yeah, but I knew someone who owned his book and was so excited to read it and literally had just bought it a month before his controversy. Yeah. 
and then was on the verge of throwing it out just because of what had happened. And so, I, you know, my first thought was like, I, I guess I get it. But right away, I, I told her, you know, you can't do this. Yeah. Please don't throw away the book. Because A, you don't have to, you can still take his knowledge. He did something really fucked up. Yeah. But that doesn't make him an entirely uh, illegitimate person. And his book is uh, a representation of that. Yeah. That it was a human being, and a very imperfect human being who read that book. Uh, he's still, he still, you know, he had a lot of incredible things to talk about. A lot of interesting uh, political science and philosophy to, to discuss, to enlighten people on. But he did ruin his own personal reputation. And so that kind of appreciation to separate the author from the book, the creator from the uh, from the made, from the product, it needs to be happen. It needs to happen a lot more. And yeah. So I'm actually really honored. I'm I'm really uh, touched that someone actually wrote the Lovecraft Country. Yeah. That's what it's called, right? Yeah, Lovecraft? actually, I think not to go on a tangent, but I think Jordan Peele is producing a TV show adaptation of it. So really, if you want to read it now and say when the TV show comes I'm out, yeah. Just my, I've been looking for a new book. Yeah. Um. To wrap this up, Max, uh, you're now making this amazing project. I ask this question to every person who's on the show. And so I will be asking you this question, as it is a tradition on of the course, show. Yeah. What will you be famous for? I would like to be the next like Kevin Feige type of person. I don't want to direct 20 different movies in, in this one franchise or something, but I kind of want to be like the guiding hand kevin feige is the marvel producer i don't know if yeah if you guys knew that but um i want to be the person who's like kind of setting all the pieces in place you know for for some grand scheme kind of behind the scenes i love it all right i love it that's really amazing guys this is max richter the creator of an entire cinematic universe and that's that's really that's really a, a, a wild thing to boggle your head around. It's quite the ambition. It's quite the tall order, especially for the subject matter that he's about to cover. Um, if you guys want to work with Max Richter, be sure to contact him via the email listed in the description of this episode. Other than that, have a great week, and I'll see you next Friday. Thanks for listening, everyone. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.